The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Our guest today is Kevin Kelly. He's the founding executive editor of Wired Magazine and a longtime tech luminary who's been writing about the tech world for decades. Kelly joins us today for a fun episode, unpacking a series of lists of advice that he's written. His lists, and there are three of them to this point, are jam-packed with insights that have helped me live a better life, and I'm sure many others every time that they, they read that. And Kelly's also written the seminal essay of the creator economy, the one that's inspired many people like me to decide to go out and become independent. It's called A Thousand True Fans, and I'm sure we're going to get to that in the second half. And so I am excited to welcome Kevin to the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real privilege and honor to be here. I appreciate it. Awesome. Kevin, one of your um, one of my favorite essays of yours is this essay called A Thousand True Fans that talks about how creators just need a thousand true fans to be able to make it. I want to definitely circle back to that, you know, by the end of this conversation, people have asked for it, uh, you know, for your perspective or an updated perspective on it. Um, but before we get there, let's run through the series of advice that you've done. I've highlighted a few, a handful of uh, bits of advice that you've put out there and, you know, would love to just read some of these to you and, and hear your thoughts about how you came to them. Yeah. Well, let me just make another little preface. So, so, um, this began when I was 68, I guess, and I felt, well, I'm getting old. And I thought that I would write some advice to my son, who's 25, and I would just kind of put down some things that I kind of knew. And I thought it was going to be like a kind of like a birthday present. And hmm. I started writing them, and then I kind of realized that um, it was fun, and I had more to say than I thought. And the fun part for me was trying to reduce a lot of vice into the smallest possible number of words as I could to make it really kind of like a little seed that might unfold. And what we're doing now of expanding them is sort of like, um, it, it's going in a different direction than what I was trying to do, which was I'm trying to take all the things we're going to talk about and I wanted to kind of encapsulate it into this really tiny little, uh, 10 words. And that was sort of, you know, the tweet metaphor maybe was in my mind, although it wasn't conscious of like, can I make this tweetable? So that's what I was doing was, was doing that. And then I found out that the next year I had more to say. And then the th <laughs> I did a third version of that. And then parenthetically, I just signed a book deal because I have another bunch. And so we're going to do a book um, with Penguin. Amazing. Breaking news. It, it is. It'll, they just signed it yesterday. It'll be wow. um, coming out in next next spring. And it's called, uh, right now, it's called Excellent Advice mm -hmm. for Living. So that's the origins. The origins was kind of like a, a little gift for my son to kind right. of encapsulate what I knew. And my intentions always was to reduce this to the smallest possible thing. <laughs> and that's, that's why I thought that it would make for a great podcast, because I felt that there was so much We're more. We're going to unpack these. Right. So let's go through as many as we possibly can. I, I really like this one. Don't be afraid to ask a question that may sound stupid, 
because 99% of the time, everyone else is thinking the same question and is just too embarrassed to ask it. It's yeah. such a, it's such a clear thing. That's true. Um, yet when you're sitting there with that question, you know, the obvious question, it's always so difficult to, to get it out. There. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, I don't have the inhibition. And the reason why <laughs> I mention that is because I am sort of famous for sitting in things and raising my hand and asking the stupid question that everybody else was saying, I wish, you know, I wanted to ask that, but I don't feel embarrassed about, about that. Yeah. So I, I don't know where that comes from. All I know is that it really does work. Yeah. You almost always get the most revealing questions. They were most revealing answers from that question. R- right. And, you know, I, I think I, 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 I'm sure like all things you, you want to do it gracefully I mean, it's, it's not meant to be an insult. I mean, it could be done in, as an insult and mean, and that is, you know, that hurts. But um, I, I do it in a genuine interest of like, I don't understand or, you know, I, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, let me know. So, yeah, I think if done gracefully, it's, it can be very, very powerful. And, you know, all I can say is, is that um, if you can, you know, get yourself to ask it, um, everybody will um, benefit from it. Right. Okay. Here's, here's the next one. I love this one. Everyone is shy. Other people are waiting for you to introduce yourself to them. They're waiting for you to send them an email. They're waiting for you to ask them on a date. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. It is amazing how much happens if you just ask, (laughs) you know, I'm not a dating expert. I never dated really very much at all. And, but, but I hear from very oftentimes very beautiful women that they're always surprised that people don't approach them in in a a kind of a natural way. And, and, and I think that's the same for me and my side of it is, um, you know, when people ask, I'm, I'm happy to help. And if they needed help and didn't ask, it's like, well, why didn't you ask? And so I think that that's generally in my own experience on the other end is also true that, that oftentimes, you know, asking appropriately, which we can talk about mm-hmm. yields tremendous results. And so the appropriate thing is like, you know, if you're approaching someone, you kind of have to be context aware of like, is this a good time for them? Is this what, what I'm asking? Is it kind of like, can they really? Is this something that they can do? I mean, there's lots of people who ask for things that are just like, why are you asking me? So I think, I think, um, there is some context awareness necessary for that. But in general, ask for what you want. Ask for it nicely, politely. And, and oftentimes that's all it takes. And it's interesting because we do have, I feel like we have so much fear in us for, for little reason. And I think there was another one that you are, I don't have it right in front of me, but you know, you got to realize that the universe is conspiring for you to succeed. And I think that the default position is the universe is conspiring for you to fail, but it's actually the opposite. Right. Yeah. That's called pronoia instead of paranoia. Pronoia is where the universe is conspiring to help you. And it's so interesting, by the way, that paranoia is a word we all know, but pronoia, not exactly. Exactly. There's a book written by a guy who, who popularized the term. It's not my term called pronoia, which is kind of about, you know, it's sort of woo-woo, new age-ish, but he kind of touts out all the the ways in which the universe is trying to um, help you. One of my favorite recent books that I read is called Humankind, and I 
forgive me, I don't remember the author. But it was one of those books that really kind of changed my mind in many ways. And, and the basic argument of the book is that by nature, humans are helpful and not selfish, mm-hmm. which is contrary to what we're taught. And he goes through all kinds of evidence, sociological and experimental, etc., historical, showing that against our popular conception, the default mode for humans is to help other people, mm-hmm. not to be selfish. And particularly in crises when you would think the selfish reflex would engage. And um, I totally buy that, 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 that we are basically kind of like programmed to help others and that we don't help, that we're selfish only in kind of the exceptional cases. And so, um, and so that, that, that switch I think is very important. And, you know, I think I've always operated with that way, but here was sort of like evidence for my, my disposition. That's right. And speaking of, you know, selflessness, you talk a lot about listening uh, in your, uh, you know, lists of advice. Here's, here's two that I thought were like particularly interesting. Would love to hear how you came to them. So here's the first one. Being able to listen well is a superpower. While listening to someone you, you love, keep asking them, is there more until there is no more? Man, that's good. And then here's the rule of three in conversation. To get to the real reason, ask a person to go deeper than what they just said. Then again, and once more, the third time's answer is close to the truth. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think I got some of this from um, Ethel Perel. I think that's her name. Esther Perel. Yeah. Esther Perel. Yeah, who is who is a psychologist and a marriage counselor and stuff. And these are the kinds of things that that um, she would counsel. And the listening to there's more was a com- a, com- a common couples. Um, exercise where um, your partner is just, you're listening and, and the active part of the listening is to solicit, say after the first round, say, well, you know, is there more? And usually there is more. There is another thing. And then the, the, the really courageous thing is after all of that, you say, and is there more? And then, <laughs> and that's the kind of going back to that third thing where, where usually by then you're kind of going to really getting down to some really fundamental things. And so, yeah, both of those are, are, are back active listening, which is you know, you're participating in by helping them the conversation to go deeper. And in my own experience, it doesn't take a lot of work to go deeper. People really kind of want to. You're kind of just giving them permission to, to do that. And by, by saying, okay, I'm willing, I'm willing to hear now and go deeper. And so, um, I've, I've, you know, done that with people I've just met. And, um, you can go very deep, very quickly if you are willing to say, and is there more? That's right. It's pretty amazing. Like I've done um, a lot of thinking about listening over the past couple of years, just trying to get better at it. A, it's better for my professional life, B, better for personal life as well. And there's definitely been this profound shift for my thinking where it was like, you know, make space for someone to share what they think about a topic versus, you know, going to the next one. But actually like true listening is trying to figure out what people want to say and then having them say it. 
you know, giving that space and trying to make sure people can go with the conversation in the way they want. And these are two like really good tricks. This rule of three, ask, 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 and keep, and then this other one, ask, is there more? Uh, practicing this to me seems to be like a good way to get, you know, to take the conversation and shift it into the core of yeah. the person. A, a really um, common trick for uh, people who are listening in, in this situation you are of the interview um, setting. Um, I've seen many people use from Terry Gross to my mentor, Stuart Brand, which is just to say, like, um, tell me about X. Just, you know, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll, they'll maybe something in passing or whatever. It's like, basically, tell me a story. Tell me, tell, tell me more. I mean, that's what they say. Tell me more about X. And so, um, again, that's, you're, you're giving an invitation. You're giving permission. You're making a space. You're, you're, you're empowering that person to kind of, um, uh, say more about that. And that is, again, it's magical. So let's, um, let's go to this one. The payoff, the grip for a great payoff. Be especially curious about the things you're not interested in. I just find it feels so true, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, <laughs> you know, how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, um, I think you know a lot of maybe my larger theme that I'm preaching is about um, challenging our own assumptions, and that's a lot of what futures work is about, and scenario stuff is really trying to climb out of the little prison that we have by what we assume and um and a lot of science and so um part of those assumptions is what we assume that we like and don't like and um uh, particularly as we get older we kind of have little ruts in some ways and so um kind of exploring something that we're pretty sure we're not interested in and becoming curious about it is one of those ways to to climb out of that um to climb out of that um, kind of box. Um, and so um, that uh, is, you know, maybe a kind of acute way of describing this is like, you know, things that you are interested in, you might want to be curious about because there, there could be all kinds of things in there that might surprise yourself. So it's a little bit about surprising ourselves. And that's, for me, that's why I do art and other things and write is because I'm trying to surprise myself. Yeah, love that. By the way, what is this one? Art is what you leave out. Art is what you leave out. So in, in my own in my own efforts, making art, writing, making stuff, um, a lot of what I'm trying to do is you're 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 framing things. And when as soon as you frame something, you're leaving stuff out, the stuff that's outside of the frame. And even within the frame, you're, you know, focusing and, and, and it's kind of a selection process. That's what editing is about. And when I'm editing stuff, I'm basically taking stuff out. You know, it's kind of like the negative space in the sculpture. It's, it's, you, you, you can describe, maybe better describe what you're trying to do and trying to select the right thing is, is, you know, you're really trying to leave out everything. And so that process of leaving out is, is, you, you can arrive at something very similar with, with, with just focusing on the leaving out part. Um, that's one of the ways you get to kind of a, a, a focus is, is by subtracting. So art is what you leave out is sort of like you take away anything that's not necessary and then you have what is necessary and that's the art. And so 
Mm. It's to, to suggest that, um, this thing of removing, ignoring, subtracting is actually very, very, very important. Yeah. And it's a great writing tip too. It's like the more clutter you have, the worse it's going to read. It actually becomes beautiful to read when you stop trying to like make it flourish and just write it as simple as you can. Well, it's more than that. I mean, I've turned in pieces to why, I mean, I've written, I'm on both sides of the wire, both as an editor and as a writer. And when I'm writing, I've turned in pieces and they'll say, okay, this wants to be half the length. So we're mm-hmm. going to take out half the words. What? You think half the words, you know, well, half the meaning. No, 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 no. It'll be better. And we're, we're going to take out half the words and this is going to be better. And so, um, removing half the words of something is, um, you know, it's exercise, it's quite an exercise in kind of focusing and deciding what's, what works and what doesn't work. And I mean, you can mm-hmm. easily, you can easily take half the words of most things. And have it become better. Agreed. I also love your approach to money in these in these columns. Here's one that I found particularly nice. Uh, aim to die broke. Give to your beneficiaries before you die. It's more fun and useful. Spend it all. Your last check should go to the funeral home, and it should bounce. Yeah, <laughs> so fun. There are a couple of books where I kind of made, uh, was given those realizations. One was called. Um, Die broke. The other one was called um, "Die with Zero, I think. Mm-hmm. And they both really changed my mind um, about this 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 aspect of um, trying to be generous while you're alive were two things or three things. One is um, you actually have more control about what the money is used for, and secondly, um, it's much more fun. And, um, mm-hmm. and thirdly is probably much more useful to the people who are receiving it. It's kind of win, win, win all around. And, um, that has, uh, you know, I had a suspicion when I was a kid that I didn't really want to like save up all my money and have all my money at the end when I didn't really have any, you know, my feeling well and I don't really have much use for it that you kind of, you don't want to oversave. You want to balance the use of money and you want to save kind of like just enough and the rest of it, you want to invest in a certain sense into your life. That it's much better to take that money and invest to things. Like if you're young, spend money on a course, um, mm-hmm. on experiences in, 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 in something new that you might want to do and, um, a new skill. And so, um, and so this is kind of an extension of that saying that, um, if you do accumulate something, um, you are kind of want to invest that now rather than later when you don't have control and you don't enjoy it and it's not as useful to someone. So um, that, that, that's been kind of something I've learned in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, and maybe a corollary to that. Um, treating a person, this is another one from you, treating a person to a meal never fails. And it's so easy to do. It's powerful with old friends and a great way to make new friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nothing makes us happier than helping other people. Mm-hmm. And I think um, having a meal, again, it's, it seems like a small, trivial thing, but it's really remarkable. We don't do it more often because it is so so easy to do. And um, I was just reminded of this just last night when um, a, 
person I know had their 70th birthday, and their party was to invite other people to dinner with them in small groups. And so they did six meals with six people each, and that was their gift on their birthday. And it was just beautiful. It was brilliant. Awesome. It was so fun. And, you know, it, and easy to do. So um, that is something that's a reminder to myself in some ways that it always works. And I, I never have had a regret about it. Yep. How about this one? Um, to keep young kids behaving on a car road trip, have a bag of their favorite candy and throw a piece out of the window each time they misbehave. How did you, have you done that? How did you come up with that one? Oh, well, 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 there's one amendment to that. And that's just un, <laughs> unwrapped candy because I got really... I got pummeled for littering. Well, okay. I mean, I mean, on the internet, um, uh-huh. you, you only have to do it once. Hmm. You only do it one time. You've done it one time, only yeah. one time, because yeah, it's the thread of it that is that works wonders. So, so you don't need to do it more than once. Kevin Kelly is with us. He's the founding editor of Wired Magazine. You can find his work at kk.org, including the series of advice columns. We'll be back after this to go through some more of his bullet points. And uh, if you don't return, we'll throw your candy out the window. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Kevin Kelly. He's the founding editor of Wired Magazine. You can find his work at kk.org. I thought this distinction between pros and amateurs was really interesting. Pros are just amateurs who know how to gracefully recover from their mistakes. What do you mean by that? If you watch professional people at work, whether it's someone you hired or you go into YouTube, um, it's amazing how often they make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And 
took me a while to kind of realize that that um, they're making mistakes because one, maybe they're moving really fast because they're working fast because time is money, and secondly, because everything you need to fix is 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 kind of a new and original problem. And I wasn't really kind of yes, a lot of it is rote and they've done it before and they know what to do, but they're often and usually some little wrinkle, which is original problem solving, and that's where the mistakes come in. So the point is is that. Um, very, very commonly, professionals make goofs, little mistakes, because they're working fast, because they, you know, weren't paying attention, or they're encountering something new. And the difference, though, is that they're very quick to recover from them, because they have in their bag and lots of little tricks to to recover from them. But they they don't let slow them down, and they kind of expect that in a certain sense. And so what they're really good at is recovering from the mistakes by either some known little trick that they have to hide it or to, um, you know, redo it quickly or whatever. There's lots of different ways. But the point is, is that they encounter mistakes and are making mistakes all the time. And that professional doesn't mean that you're not making mistakes as perfect. It only means that you are able to recover from these very, really quickly and hide them to, so to speak, um, recover is probably a better word. Right. And handling adversity is a big part of yeah. these, these bits of advice that you give. I think one of them is if you want to understand the true character of a person, <laughs> um, see how irritated they become with the slow internet connection. And it is like, you can, you can really learn how people respond to a lot about people by how they respond to minor inconveniences. Yes, exactly. Uh, I think that, um, you're right that, 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 uh, a sign of an amateur is sort of giving up or becoming flustered or, mm-hmm. um, somehow thinking that things have to be perfect. And, um, that's something else I maybe as a general theme is I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of perfectionism. Right. I'm a kind of like good enough ish person, satisfying it was called in the technical literature. Mm-hmm. You, you, it's enough to satisfy it. And so um, I, I, I think that that is a sign of professionalism as well. And, and kind of um, an admirable character is somebody who deals with these adversities because they're not demanding perfection. Mm-hmm. And I think there was another bit of advice, which was that um, something can be really good without being perfect. And, you know, weddings was, was the, yes. <laughs> signature example of that where, you know, brides often demand the perfect wedding, but it's like, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be good. It still can be wonderful experience without being perfect. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of perfectionism. Yeah. And there's also, I think you really go out of your way to talk about the need for breaks. Here's another one. Uh, efficiency is highly overrated. Goofing off is highly underrated. Regularly scheduled uh, Sabbath sabbaticals Vacations, breaks, aimless walks, and time off are essential for top performance of any kind. The best kind of work ethic requires a good rest ethic. Rest ethic is another one, you know, along with pronoia that I had never heard before. But I think it's so true that, that you know, people feel like it's their productivity, their self is measured in the hours they work. But actually taking these long breaks seem to go a long way. Yeah. So rest ethic is a term I picked up from a book called, I think, Time Off. Mm-hmm. That was making some of these same arguments. Um, there's another, I don't know if it's included in this 
batch or not, but there's another piece, which is that um, taking a break is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're able to take a break, I mean, you, that's, that's strong. That's you're, 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 you're being, you have confidence. You, um, it's a sign that you know what you're doing, um, et cetera. So, so don't think of taking a break. I need a break. It's a sign of weakness. No, no, no. It's a, that's, that's very wise. And, um, I, I, I do think that slack is underappreciated. And I don't mean just slack, like I'm taking off, but also. Yeah. Not the app. There was, there was exactly, but there was a great book. I think it was called Peopleware, I think, but they were making, they were making this case in, in, in terms of teams in the corporate world that in fact, someone did done the study of the most effective teams. And there was like, often in some of the most effective teams, there was one person whose role could not be identified is how they said it. Hmm. And that turned out that person, because their role wasn't identified, they kind of like were the slack element, meaning that when the emergency came up and there was something kind of weird, everybody else was like stuffed to the gills with their assigned assignments. But this one person was able to turn and do that thing because they had this ill-defined, slightly slacky position. And, um, that you kind of wanted to have slack built into your system in some ways so that it could be nimble and fast and agile. That, that kind of hmm. being agile requires to have a certain amount of slack built in because if you're kind of tuned up all the way and high strung and you're totally efficient, there's no room to be adaptable and agile and responsive. So, so I think it's more than just kind of like, this idea of taking vacations, it's, it's, it's like you, I, I think the most creative people have to have a lot of slack in their schedule. You have to have slack in your kind of your, your outlook. You've got to have something to give. So that when this big opportunity, which by the way, is not going to be labeled big opportunity. When that comes, you're able to, to move to it because you have some slack otherwise you're just completely bound by what you're currently doing right and this goes along the idea of like a you know achievement culture where people like feel so pressed to achieve they forget to live sometimes and here's another one along those lines before you are old attend as many funerals as you can bear and listen nobody talks about the departed's achievements the only thing people remember is what kind of person you were while you were achieving that is so true and unfortunately i've had um, my chance to attend to funerals, particularly as my cohort, um, ages. Um, and, um, it is, I, 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 this was born out of my own personal experience. It was amazing to me how infrequently people talked about the achievements of the departed. They always right. talked about what kind of a person they were. And that's all that they cared and will remember. So the achievements are just basically a way to be. It's a way to, to you know, to exhibit your being. It's, it's, it's a means to be something and not really the end goal, ultimately. And so um, focusing on that while you're alive is, for me, part of what I'm trying to do anyway. You know, along the line of that, there's 
you know, this fame culture that we have, people are obsessed with likes and retweets and followers on Instagram. You have a very good way of looking at this. Cultivate 12 people who love you because they are worth more than 12 million people who like you. Yeah, that's just um, human nature. And um, liking, and, and I think somewhere else I say it's like, you know, you don't want people necessarily to, to like you, you want them to respect you. And I think that's part of what, you know, being close um, to people is, is about um, a, a different Mm, a different kind of relationship than the liking. And I think. Yeah, say more about that. Well, um, it's funny because I know lots of families, particularly larger families, where there'll be brothers and sisters and they actually don't like each other, but they love each other mm-hmm. and respect each other. And I think, I think liking is, liking's not at the top of the pyramid. Um, it's a, it's a kind of way, it's a step in towards something much deeper and, and meaningful, both to both sides of the relationship. And, um, I mean, and there are people that I kind of admire, but don't like. And there's, you know, I'm sure there's people that I like that, um, that I don't admire. And so I, I, I think we just are confused by, um, by followers and influence and stuff like that from, we're confused with, with the other kinds of emotional relationships that we really crave and get more from. And we shouldn't be distracted by that. I, I'm perfectly fine with having millions of followers. I think that's good when people have that, but it just has to be in the right place and can't be a substitute for other kinds of relationships. And sometimes it is. Um, and that's a problem. And other people are able to understand that, you know, you can have a million followers and they're just, they're looking at something different and they're, they, they don't have that meaning. In fact, I have talked to people with a million followers and asked them, what do you get from that? <laughs> and often it's not very much. And sometimes it's a burden. So, so, so there, it's just less valuable than you might think. And this kind of goes back to something you mentioned earlier about the thousand true fans. Which is that, um, perfect segue. Let's, let's end with this. Yes. So go ahead. That, 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 um, you would do much better as a being and as a creator and as a doer, um, to have a thousand people who are true fans than have millions and millions of followers in general. And you actually would get more from that and they would get more from you. And, you know, to, to, summarize the the general theory of a thousand true fans it says that um with the modern technology we have of communications that you don't need to have millions of followers to have a living that if you have direct contact and relationship and exchanges with true fans um meaning you can deliver them what it is that you do. They can respond. You can engage. They give you all the money directly to you. Um, then um, you don't need more than a thousand or a couple thousand of these to have a livelihood. You're not going to become a millionaire or fortune, but you can have a livelihood because if you could get a true fan to give you a hundred dollars a year, 
And mm-hmm. a true fan should, because a true fan is somebody who will buy whatever you do. They're your total, total best fan. They're going to buy the, the single, the double, the box set. They're going to go to every show you put on. They're going to get the paperback and the hardback and the audible version and, and the merch. You know, that, that's the true fan. And if you can get a hundred dollars a year, then a hundred times a thousand is a hundred thousand a year. So that's the theory that, that, um, with modern technology, you can bypass labels and studios and, uh, publishers and go directly to the fans. And you don't need all the extra money that, um, those intermediaries would demand. So you don't need millions. You only need thousands. And when I first proposed this pre Kickstarter and Patreon, mm-hmm. it was more Substack. of a theory, but mm-hmm. it's not a theory because I know, I mean, I've been contacted by hundreds and I know of thousands of people who make their living with a thousand true fans. And, um, those are just the true fans. And, you know, there's concentric circles because outside the true fans are, casual fans and then you know and so there's um there's a lot of people and the true fans become evangelists for your other fans and followers so it's it's an entirely doable goal aiming to become to have a million followers to become a bestseller to have a golden record with uh, going platinum and selling millions that's not really achievable for most people but having a thousand true fans is a much more achievable goal for many people. Right. Have you been sort of blown away by the fact that after you wrote that essay in 2008, pretty prescient. So have you been blown away that, you know, after that happened, the internet has really enabled all this stuff to come to, come to form. Yeah. You know, whether it is those that you mentioned, Substack also, um, you know, what has it been like? And, and do you have any, any updated thinking on it after you wrote it? Or do you think the, the original essay kind of holds form? Um, well, I, I did an original essay and then I did a revised essay, which was prompted by a request from Tim Ferriss. And in that second version, I had a, a kind of a additional epiphany, which is that, um, the thing about a thousand true fans is that in a world, again, enabled by technology where we have a global market, that um almost any interest, even an interest that only would appeal to one in a million people, some obscure hobby, you know, like soft saltwater jellyfish aquariums, or I mean, that's probably pretty big, but I mean, some some the weirdest little um collectible or um cosplay fetish or whatever it is, it, even if it appeals to one in a million people. With 8 billion people potentially connected, there'll be a thousand people on the planet who will be totally into what you're doing. And so, um, we just need to connect with them and find them and match them, which is not a trivial thing to do, but it says that your most interesting person that you can think of and do and the thing that you're most interested in passionate about, has the potential to be, to support you because it was, there will probably be a thousand people in the world who will also want that exact same thing as you do. And so, um, 
So, so that's, that's another way in which this thousand true fans is playing out, which is that very, very, very niche things, you know, left-handed fly fishing reels or whatever it is. You can make a living by, by that because of this new technology it will allow you to connect directly with those people. Yeah. And one of the lines that runs through um, all these pieces is just your optimistic viewpoint on life. And, you know, I, I think that it's amazing to look at the world the way that you do. And, um, you know, I think optimism is underrated these days. So <laughs> it's good to hear yeah. from you and uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing this with us. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for asking some great questions. And um, I really appreciate the chance to share. And that will do it for us here on Big Technology Podcast. Thanks again to Kevin for joining us. Uh, that was awesome. Thank you, Nick Watney, for editing the audio. Thank you to LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. Thanks to all you, the listeners. Um, you know, past few weeks, we've been asking for ratings and uh, it does really make a big difference. And a lot of people have come through, really seen lots of five-star ratings come in and uh, and that means a lot. So I appreciate it. Uh, everyone who's, who's taken the time to do that. We will be back next week uh, for an interview with Mark Bergen, who has a new book about YouTube coming out. It's a great book. Um, I'm about halfway through it. I will be through it by the time the interview uh, comes around. And uh, I guarantee you're going to like this this new podcast coming up with Mark. He's a reporter at Bloomberg, by the way, for those who don't know him. Um, And and that will do it for us. Hope your summer is going well. Hope you've enjoyed this sort of lighter content on the the pod. We get back to hard news uh, next week. All right. And with that, we will see you next week on Big Technology Podcast. Music